We now pick up on God deciding to have another chat with Abraham. Now, it's interesting that perhaps I'm making an argument out of silence here, but there is some silence here. We don't see God having contact with Abraham from the age of 86 to now the age of 99. And if you are already not feeling like you've got the capabilities within yourself to be able to accomplish the things that God has got in store for you, and you're 86, with each birthday that clicks off, I can't even imagine the degree to which he is now despairing of any sort of self-reliance at this point. And perhaps that's what God is, is needing to do with Abraham and Sarah, is to, to completely, in, in a sense, purge from them any idea that they could rely on self and only that this is only going to come by the very hand in the power of God. And so here we go from 86 and then in, in verse 14, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. This is the first time that the title of God is introduced, the title of God, El Shaddai. It is the idea that not just the mightiness of God, of course that is in sight here, but packed deep into it is the mightiness has to do with God's ability to supply our needs. It is God's provision that is now inside of this idea of, of El Shaddai. So God says, let me just introduce myself to you again, Abram. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. He's, he's using now a, a, an interesting play on words for what he's now going to call Abraham. He will now call him Abraham. In Hebrew, it is uh, the, the idea that you are, you are a father of the many, and the, the nations are the goyim, but father of many is, is what is now the name of Abraham. He, he says, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. Let me just camp on this for one minute as we move along in this passage. Apparently we're not moving along very quickly. But as we move along in this passage, here, Abram is the word that means, and it's the name that means for him, exalted father. Now, he was named that by Terah. The, the idea of exalted father is one that points backwards. It is that this is your lineage. It's basically a title to Abraham saying, you come from good stock. You've got pedigree. You are from an honorable family. And your father is an exalted father. And, and so Terah apparently was in his culture there, in Ur and later in Haran. And, and so Abram points backwards to where Abram came from. But now, as God makes this covenant with him and solidifies it, he now says, that's not what you're about anymore. You've come out of all of that. 
And it's time for a new name. And here's your new name. Abraham. And this is now the idea that you will be the father of many nations. And now he's pointing forward in the very title, the very name that God gives to Abraham. You're not about where you've come from. You're about where you're going, Abraham. Life is now about the future. Daring, wonderful that it is. All based on my provision for you because I'm El Shaddai and I'm going to deliver on this. But again, Abraham is 99 years old, has not actually fathered this child that he was supposed to father. Yes, he did father a child through a handmaiden and, and that was a bit of a compromise. But imagine now as Abraham introduces himself to, to people and they say, so, uh, so, so what's your name? I am the father of a multitude. Really? So, like all those people in the tents back there, they're, they're, they're all of your kids? No, it's more of a future promise type of a thing that's, that, that's going on here. But, to, I mean, there are probably things that you have to explain sometimes when you're introduced to somebody that they get to be a bit annoying. I would imagine that for Abraham, this might have been even a little bit embarrassing. But... Nonetheless, it was a reminder of him every single time that he had interaction with anyone and, and he would be able to then state his name. Oh my goodness, I, I must really, must really need to be relying on God because I, my 100th birthday is coming up pretty soon and I got nothing. My body's as good as dead. Sarah's closed up shop, but I am the father of a multitude. Pleased to meet you. But this is where God wants us. He, he maneuvers us into this very place where we finally have to come to a realization, time to rely on God. El Shaddai. For I have made you a father of many nations. Past tense. I've already made you a father of many nations. It reminds us of God calls those things that are not as though they already are. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you reside as a foreigner, I'm going to give you as an everlasting possession to you, your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you. Now this is the first time in all of the, the Bible that we have so far that God puts a covenantal condition on his agreement with Abraham. Up until this point, everything has just been blessing, promise, blessing, promise. Check it out. This is yours. Check it out. This is yours. But at no point has God said to him, and this is what I expect from you. Here's how the agreement works back and forth. So now God says, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old, must be circumcised. Along with those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, 
whether born in your household or, or brought with your money, they must be circumcised. But by the way, as a side note, why on the eighth day? Why, why does God say that the, the <laughs> circumcision needs to occur on the eighth day? Why not on the seventh day, you know, a, a Sabbath day? Or, or why not on the sixth day, the, the pinnacle of creation, of all things being created on the sixth day? But, but the eighth day is what it is that, that God gives us here. And it's interesting that the, the eighth day does have some kind of wonderful overflowing implications of, of, of being kind of a super rest, a super Sabbath, a super covenant that we would have in God. But th there's a side note to this. In 1935, a, a professor identified a vitamin. He called it a vitamin. It was actually more of a property that was, was in infants called vitamin K in, in newborns. And here's what's interesting about it is vitamin K is, the, is responsible for the production of a, of a material called prothrombin. Prothrombin is made in the liver and it is kind of catalyzed by this vitamin K and when both vitamin K and prothrombin are in the body in sufficient quantities it prevents hemorrhaging or promotes the the kind of the healing or the kind of the coagulation of blood now here's what's interesting only in the fifth to seventh day of a newborn does vitamin K appear? So if you were to have any sort of surgical procedure on a newborn prior to the fifth or seventh day, well then, that would then have much greater risk of hemorrhaging in, in that newborn. Um, but once the, the, the vitamin K, which is produced by bacteria in the intestinal tract, is present in adequate quantities, it then begins to kind of have this wonderful interaction with prothrombin and is available for the promotion of coagulation of blood. And so, interestingly, if you measure in a newborn the levels of vitamin K, but more importantly even prothrombin, there is only one day in a male's life where prothrombin is available at, at, at levels 100% above normal. Uh, and that, that only day in a, in a male's life is the eighth day of their life. And it is the ultimate day for a surgical procedure, if, if one needed to happen. So maybe just as a side note, God knows what he's doing. Anyway, moving on. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as for... Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarah. Sarai, her name will be Sarah. There's no real difference in meaning in Sarai to Sarah. It's both princess in both cases. The idea that kings will actually be born from her. But it is an affirmation that, yes, she still is the princess. And she still be, will be the one that will mother many of, of the kings of this world. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? 
We, we now begin a, a series in, in Genesis of, of laughter again and again. Uh, you'll see, of course, Abraham laughing here. In a few moments, Lot's sons will laugh at him in disbelief in that case. Later, Sarah will laugh when given the promise of the birth of Isaac. After that, when Isaac is born, not only will Abraham and Sarah laugh, but all of those that celebrate the birth will laugh together in the fulfillment of God's promises. And so laughter, literally Isaac, he laughs, will be a theme that takes us forward from here. He said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, Ah, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, uh, Yes, but... What's, what's interesting is, if you have a, another translation of the Bible, in verse 19, it actually says, No. So here we have yes. And it's an interesting word... It's a, it's a word that's trying to be polite, that good try, but that was a swing and a miss. And in a sense, in a kindness to Abraham, God is, is saying to him, you're way off. You're so far off. And your idea of what you can accomplish in the flesh through Ishmael is nowhere near my plans. And they are still glorious. Yes, but your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. Again, Abraham is fresh from his laughter at this point. I, and that may have even been, I think, a very convicting thing for him. It's like, oh, you will laugh again. And you will laugh with your son. Son born of Sarah. It's coming. Put your faith in what it is that I say to you. I... I can't even begin to imagine how monumental this might be. To be that old and to have to trust in God for, for, for something like procreation. To be able to father a child through a 90-year-old wife as a 100-year-old man. And yet, he decides, I'm going all in on this. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I'm in verse 20, I've heard you. Ishmael literally means that. I hear you. God hears. I will surely bless him. Now, this is a side note, but this happens, I think, too often in our relationship with God. We decide to go ahead and absolutely trounce our relationship with God and our covenant with God. We, we may do it in something horrid. It, it, it could be that we decide to engage in sexual relations with someone that is you know, premarital, extramarital, whatever it might be, and then, and then come to God and say, kind of after the fact, well, God, yes, I made a mess of things, but why don't you go ahead and bless it? And in a sense, that's a little bit, of, I think, of what Abraham has done. Abraham has compromised faith in the promise of God through Hagar, through that sexual relationship, and through Ishmael. And now, it's interesting that God does say, all right, I will, I hear you with Ishmael, but nonetheless, the blessing that's going to come to him is nothing like what is going to come to Isaac. It, and for us to presume upon God and say, well, 
You know, I've seen other people just totally abuse the covenant with God and things kind of work out in that way. Oh my goodness. We should sh just shudder before a holy God if we even can think, even, even allow a thought like that to enter in. We're, there is no faith in, in that type of a life. There's only self-gratification that is just blinding everything. God has been completely removed. And, and now we're going to try and claim ex post facto. Oh, well, maybe this is God's will that the, perhaps this union was always meant to be. No, if it was always meant to be, then, and if that's what you really believe, then, then why not do it the right way? You know what's so encouraging is, is this year I've performed a couple weddings, last year a few more weddings, and, and this is what's so encouraging. In all of those weddings at this point, every single wedding, as the minister pronounces, I now pronounce you man and wife, you may now kiss the bride, that in every one of those cases, that was their very first kiss. And in some cases, they dated for, for years. And because they wanted to do things God's way, have God's blessing, surrender to God, and rather than to just indulge the flesh and then try to bring in God later, instead, that's the path that they have taken. That's an Abrahamic faith to, to really go all in and living for God that way. Now, here's the beauty of God in this case. Although we should never presume upon God, it's a wicked thought to say, I'm going to go ahead and sin now, but, you know, I am going to repent later. So, you know, it'll be all right. That's God's job. He, he fixes all that stuff up. He may forgive your sin, but he never takes away the consequence of sin. There will be dire consequences more than we perhaps even realize. In hindsight, we'll realize them. And there were dire consequences with Ishmael of all that came from that illicit union between Hagar and Abraham that produced Ishmael. And so, well, in verse 21, but my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him on that very day. Wow. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. I don't think anybody really wants to have that written about them, but that's some faith right there to undergo that. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. This is not an easy thing that God is asking of them to show that you're all in with his covenant. It would be maybe understandable to think, and they waited for an opportune time. No, that, a covenant with God? Why not? Oh my goodness, you would consider us to be in a covenant with, yes, let's do this thing this very day. Let's ratify the covenant. 26, verse 20. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day and every male in Abraham's household, including those in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Let's talk about some of the things that are evident in this passage. First and foremost, as my first point is, covenant confidence. Why does God even have to make a covenant with us? Why does he need to do that? Does he maybe not trust us? Do we not trust him? The beauty of a covenant, the beauty of a contract, the beauty of a ring on a wedding day is that 
in some small or great way, we are given a confidence about the connection and the beauty of the relationship that has come about. A covenant is really an ad additional bestowal of grace by God upon us. He already wants to have a relationship based on grace with us, but how much more so is it special when we have a certainty, a certitude about the connection that we really do have with God. And this covenant that he made with Abraham, Hebrews 11 says, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. God was good to what he said. And we know from a historical perspective that, as we've already mentioned, 3.8 billion people today trace their faithful lineage back to Abraham. 3.8 billion from a man that was 100 years old and withered up dry, trusting in a promise that he was going to be a fruitful vine that would produce all of the promises to all of the nations of the earth. A really astounding, but it's very easy to have a real moment of deep doubt and wonder, maybe God means this in a metaphorical sense. Maybe they'll be blessed because they'll read about me someday. Maybe they'll be blessed because something that I have said or done inspires them in some way. But no, no, no. God is, no, it's going to really happen through Isaac. And the, the confirmation of that is through the, this covenant that includes circumcision. Now, now circumcision is, to, to put it bluntly, it, it is the cutting off of the foreskin of the male penis. And it's like, wow, why, I mean, why that, of, of, of all things, to, to be able to pick something to have? Well, for one, it's, it's, it's clearly something that you're not going to forget. It's, it's identifiable. It's unmistakable. Circumcision is referred to many times in the Old Covenant about many things. And it is, circumcision, just the word itself, doesn't always have to do with foreskin. So anything can be, can be circumcised, uh, including a tree could, could have uncircumcised fruit if it's, if it's an unclean fruit. The idea of circumcision is another way of saying of being refined by, by the, the, the very work of God. In, in Jeremiah, he laments that the people, as they listen to his preaching, have uncircumcised ears. God in Deuteronomy wants people to circumcise not just their, their privates, but he wants them to circumcise their hearts. And, but to not make a mistake between these things, the, the idea that God would talk about circumcised hearts and ears and fruit and all of those things doesn't necessarily mean that it's referring to this circumcision. It's just the same word, this idea of a cutting off and a refining in order to be in a, in a more wonderful state. Now, now, of course, it is symbolic that God wants this to be the case for his people so that you recognize that you have a fleshliness about you that really does need to be refined, refined by a faith in me. What is it that refines our fleshliness? Not the circumcision of a foreskin, but what refines our fleshliness is deciding to trust not in our flesh, but trust in God. And then we live in a new covenant sense, no longer for ourselves, gratifying the desires of the sinful nature, but rather in delight of living in alignment with God. Self-denial is one of the great refinements of a circumcised heart. 
If you truly have had circumcised ears to hear the gospel, a circumcised heart to, to be able to receive the gospel, then, then you would have a denial of the flesh. You've had a, a fleshly circumcision, a denial of all things fleshly, to live not for self-gratification, but for the greatness of God. Now, a covenant with God helps to be able to breed great confidence. It's one thing to, to have the promises of God it's another thing for God to make it super clear that this is now our ratification, me and you. It's why I think that it is such a horrendous thing that the new covenant, which is given to us with such kind of clarity of, of, of promises and clarity of covenant ratification, is corrupted by, by those that just want to make it the almost, almost as though it's the propagation of a good idea, right? You know, if you have this good idea, Jesus is Lord, and you, and you kind of hold that to yourself, and, and that's really kind of your heart and your allegiance, then you know what? You've got the new covenant with God. That is not firm ground. That's shaky ground. Well, do I have the idea or do I not have the idea? Have I come to trust in Jesus as Lord or have I not come to trust in Jesus as Lord? And then, as if, well, we got to add to it. we got to do more than that. So how about we do this? How about, if you're not sure, if you like the idea that Jesus is Lord, to, to kind of solidify things between you and God, how about we do, what could we do, what could we do? I know what we'll do, is, alright, why don't you just shut your eyes, and if any of you out there is not really sure where you're, I don't mean to shut your eyes, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a caricature of what many do on this. Uh, and, and, and then... Then the preachers just simply exploit difficulties that are common to everybody. Some of you out there, I believe, are having financial difficulties. Thanks, okay, that's 70% of the people. Uh, some of you are, are, are feeling as though you're not really in that oneness of intimacy with your wife right now or with your husband. Okay, that's 99.9% .9 of all married people you know, in, the, in the group right now. Some of you young folks out there are uncertain of your future and, and whether God is really going to be able to provide you a, kind of a, a, a suitable relationship in marriage. Right? You know, okay, we covered all the bases. Well, let me throw a couple more things in there. Some of you are struggling with pornography. Some of you are struggling with gossip. Some of you, right? We, we, we kind of cover all the bases. And, and now that we've got them in that unshaky ground because, of course, all those things are still going on in their life. And all they're holding on to is a sort of an idea that Jesus is Lord. Let's do this. Come on down front. Come on down front here. This is an altar call. I'm calling you to the altar. And if you come here and then you really pray, really pray right now to invite Jesus into your life. Invite Jesus into your heart. Which, by the way, is not anywhere in Scripture of how unsaved people come to Jesus in a new covenant. Zero, zero, zero. Closest thing you can come to is Revelation 3.19. And, and that's to a church of already saved people that need to get their act together in Laodicea. Not a good uh, a model for an unbeliever coming in. But oh my goodness, the kind of the hypocrisy and the, the blasphemy of trying to kind of create a man-made covenant when God has already put a covenant into place. 
And then, and then just say, all right, now really pray. And, and, and there's so many good-hearted people that do this, do it repeatedly because there's so much uncertainty in it. And it's so man-made that you can't find the confidence in it in Scripture. And come forward and be like, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, come into my heart. Come and be with me and I'll be with you. I want you to be Lord of my life, Lord. I want this. And, and those are very sincere prayers. But it's not the covenant that God has put into place in Scripture. And then sadly, in almost all of those cases, the, the preacher has the gall to pronounce upon them salvation. Well, if you've done this and you've invited Jesus into your heart, well, then you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Congratulations. You are saved by Jesus in the means by which I just invented. Frightening. Because it's not just about the idea. It's not just about an ethereal faith. It is about the ratification of the covenant the way that God wants it to be ratified. The fact that he gives clarity, clarity in the covenant makes it pretty clear that I'm in a covenant with God. The, the fact that, that Abraham circumcised all of his family made it very secure for him. It was also very uncomfortable, but very secure for him to realize, all right, we're, we're actually all in. We're, we're really in a covenant with God. But what if he instead had said to him, hey, hey Abraham, just think some pretty good thoughts about me. All right, and, and then you'll be in a ratified covenant with me. Where is he going to feel more secure? If he's thinking, uh, did I, am I having this? I had a bad thought about God. I'm out of the covenant. Ah, oh. But yes, any, any sort of a kind of a nebulous, kind of airy-fairy approach like that, under the spiritual guise of that's faith, it's just faith alone, negates the certainty and the power of of security of having a clear covenant with God. Let me move on. Uh, point two. We actually have a covenant with God in the new covenant. And it's not circumcision. Hallelujah. I was just trying to think of what that ceremony would look like and how the sharing would go ahead of time. But we are, we are circumcised by Christ. In, in the New Covenant, circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, what is this circumcision by Christ that we have? What is this covenantal connection that we have when we go from dead in sin to alive in Christ? When we go from under the penalty of sin to having all of our sins forgiven? To go from having no real righteousness of our own to having the righteousness of Christ. Where is this that we go from being buried with Christ to being made alive with Christ? What is it that God gives us in the new covenant that makes it as certain and as clear as he does in, in the old covenant? Well, he does it in Colossians 2. In, really, when he establishes the covenant in Acts chapter 2 as well. When the people come and realize the resurrection of Jesus Christ is brought about because we required his death, because we sinned. What should we do? And Peter standing up to be able to bring new believers for the first time into covenant with God, says to, to them, who says, Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all on whom the Lord our God will call. And those who accepted Peter's message that day were baptized. And, and so in the new covenant, we do have this 
amazing connection and clarity and certainty. In Colossians 2, 11, here's what the Bible reads. I'll, I'll read it to you. You don't have to jump over there if you don't wish. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh. That phrase there is just your sarks, your fleshliness. Your whole fleshliness was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. How did that happen? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. There's some beautiful truth that is laid out here in Colossians 2. But one of the big things to recognize is this is not a circumcision performed by the hands of men. This is an amazing activity that we engage in. And it is an operation performed by Jesus. The fleshliness of our lives is removed. The offering of the forgiveness of sins is ratified. New life. We go from dead in sin to alive in Christ. We go from fleshly and under the dominion of flesh and sin to having all of that thrown off. Everything that is promised in here, buried with Christ, made alive with Christ, all sins forgiven, fleshliness no longer ruling us. All of this happens at a time where we get to actually participate in a burial with Christ and a, a resurrection to new life. Why? Because we come to this dead in our sins, as this passage says. But we walk from it new life, in newness of being. Praise God. And, and all of it hinges on our faith. Just like in Abraham. You're not raised just because you engaged in the activity. It, 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 there's no power in the activity of baptism. All of it is in the fact that your faith is the integral ingredient in the midst of all of this. You can take anybody and bury them in water and sadly bear the consequence. But the only person that, that can be raised to new life, this passage says, is that you're raised by your faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised Jesus from the dead. A faith that believes that God can raise the dead. A faith that believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. A faith that affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the implications that flow from that. That's what we bring. Yes, we've been brought to this faith by God. And God, through His Holy Spirit, convicted us and orchestrated all of this so that we could come to faith. And you think that would be enough to, to be able to have that kind of faith. But God says, no, I'm going to give you something even more so that you walk around secure. I'm going to ratify all of this. There's going to be a before and after picture that is going to be extremely distinct so that you will never have to wonder, did I really go from dead in sin to alive in Christ? Did I really go from unbelief to belief? Did I really go from being under the penalty and debt of sin to being completely now set free in Jesus? I'm going to do it by you participating through baptism in a burial with Christ and a rising to new life. By the way, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I, I was baptized. Once I, I came to believe and was saved, I was baptized. Well, there, not that I want to be overly picky about this, but that makes so little sense 
with respect to this passage. Because if God wrote, took you and raised you to new life, why would he then decide to then bury you? Then this becomes a macabre covenant, if that's the case. Congratulations, you're, you're alive. Now you'll be buried. This actually affirms that no, while you're still dead in your sins is when we are buried with Christ. Just so that you don't kind of come up with five or six different ways at which you think that's the moment where, where God does his operations, where he does this great work. And, and the fact that he makes it so clear is only to enhance the certainty and the grace that is given to us. There's nothing that you do here. This actually even says, this is not a work done by men. The, the word that is in the Greek here, a kieropoitis, a not kiero hand poitus work. This is not a work done by any hand of men, including you. It is done by Christ so that you don't ever have to think this relied on me in any way. But also it's very distinct and very clear and praise God. And then finally, to close out, with all of this being so clear to Abraham, here's the part that is just so astounding. On that very day, that 99-year-old man got out the flint knife. On that very day, he sat down with Ishmael and had one of the hardest conversations he was ever going to have with his son. His 13-year-old, adolescent, pubescent son. We are going to do something today, son. It's hard to explain. But it's happening today. Because it's big stuff that awaits us. We have covenant with God. Covenant with God that awaits us. Why should we delay any longer? And I think for any of us, we know that there is something that really does happen in our life when, when, when our faith, when our faith is, is expressed in obedience to God. Is there anything that you've been holding back on? Is there something that you know is really faith expressing itself through love in your life? What is that thing? And, and for many of you, you've not actually entered into your covenant with Christ. Or maybe you've got some sort of a vague sort of connection to Christ, but you've never decided to search it out clearly scripturally to see what it really looks like to really repent, come to belief, come to saving faith in God, and surrender over to the reception of the covenant and all that is, is mentioned here, having been buried with Christ. And this very day is what Abraham did. This very day is what God really hopes for you to do as well. To, to not let sleep come to your eyes. Tear up the scriptures. Get on the phone. Connect with the folks that can be able to help you with this. Because what God has in store for you is nothing but wonder and glory and promise. That you are to become the person that you've always doubted that you were meant to be. And even though God says to you, this is who you are scripturally. You have new life. You have righteousness. You're seated in the heavenly realms. This is who you are. This is the confidence by which I want you to walk the earth. That you are my chosen son and daughter whom I love with whom I am well pleased. This is what I want for you. Why wait another day? And so as a closing charge, what is it that God affirms about you that you think is laughable, but is nonetheless true? That's if you're already in a covenant with God. If you're not already in a covenant with God, you know what your thing to do is. Get in a covenant with God. But, but for the rest of us, have a good discussion. What is it that God affirms about you that he wants you to know, that he wants you to be encouraged by as you walk the rest of your days in anticipation of the return of Christ? Talk about that with somebody and let the scriptures affirm that for you. Amen. Thank you.